Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Alison Hill, State Chief Investment Officer at QIC, and each fortnight we invite our listeners to take 10 and get an update on economics, markets and other topics of interest for institutional investors. And each podcast, I'm joined by QIC's Chief Economist, Dr Matthew Peter, who's just flown in from Singapore. Hello, Matthew. Uh, hi, Alison. You'll have to uh, excuse me if I sound a bit sketchy, but uh, actually the transition hasn't been too bad. The weather in uh, Singapore is not unlike the weather we're having here right now in uh, Brisbane. It's pretty hot and humid, that's for sure. But uh, look, we've had some pretty interesting events happen over the last fortnight. Matthew, one thing I did want to talk to you about is China's COVID zero policy, which is continuing to this day. My understanding is that, you know, there's great portions of China which are currently under lockdown to try and prevent uh, the spread of COVID, but actually COVID has actually hit um, a high in terms of uh, cases recorded in China. Um, I really think that that's probably likely had quite a big impact on China's already slowing economy. Is that your view as well? Well, uh, it certainly was the topic of one of the topics of conversation at the conference I was at at Singapore. And of course, Singapore has just come off its own uh, you know, Omicron wave. In terms of the uh, extent of the hit to the Chinese economy, I think it's still a little bit early to tell. I've seen some reports that have indicated it's hitting up to uh, a fifth, 20% odd of GDP. And whilst it may be the case that it's affecting regions that account for 20% of the population, I think it's a long bow to draw, Alison, to say that that translates to affecting 20% of the population, um, let alone 20% of um, GDP. Remember that the authorities are trying to ease out of, gradually out of the zero COVID policy. They had their 20 measures that were released just after the People's uh, Congress. And they are trying to keep their factories open, although the spread of the uh, disease, especially down to Guangdong province and into Shenzhen, remember Shenzhen port is the the fifth or fourth busiest uh, container port in the world. That's a concern. So, I think so. Yeah, I think so. But what about um, what do you think about the inflationary impacts? I mean, I look at this and think, you know, presumably this has to sort of continue to create issues for supply chains globally with so much manufacturing occurring in China. Has that revised your views on inflation at all? Well, there's a supply and a demand side to the story line here. Firstly, uh, there's the the potential for bottlenecks reoccurring uh, because of the of the issue you raised with uh, manufacturing. But we're in a world now where growth is slowing. And if China locks down and its growth slows as well, there'll be a a significant uh, slowdown in in global demand coming from that source as well. And a lot of the prices that are falling now, they're decoupled. They're not correlated. In fact, they're probably negatively correlated to whatever is happening to price of goods coming out of of China, if China's falling. So if you look at the prices that are falling quite sharply now, you've got, as we know, uh, oil prices, uh, gasoline prices are falling. A weaker China would probably push that, those prices further down. You've got uh, global food prices, perhaps not in Australia, but globally food prices are falling quite sharply. A weaker China will probably bring those prices down as well. And you've already got um, those interest-sensitive parts of the economy, uh, like housing market, already experienced house price falls. So a weaker China with a weaker economy will put downward pressure on prices and perhaps push against whatever upward pressure on manufactured good prices might come out of uh, China's wow. lockdown. Well, that, that's that's a nice counter. I, I'll I'll take that one. 
You're listening to Alison Hill, uh, QIC's State Chief Investment Officer and QIC's Take 10 podcast where I'm discussing markets and economics with Dr Matthew Peter. Over the last week or so, we've just had the COP27 wrap up. Any interesting takeaways from that one for you, Matthew? Well, I think the biggest takeaway is how completely disorganised and how uncoordinated uh, the, the the nations are, the both the developed and the developing nations are with regard to any coordinated view on uh, on on transition, on an approach to transition. Really, for me, that's the biggest takeaway, Alison. I think that's an unfortunate truth. And um, I know you've done some work on this one as well, Matthew, but just the potential inflationary impacts, not to harp on inflation again, uh, but in potential inflationary impacts of a, a disorderly transition. Well, Alison, you're correct to identify uh, inflation as one of the major uh, offshoots of transition. And that that uh, pressure on inflation, particularly in the medium term, uh, will occur regardless of the nature of uh, the uh, transition actually, whether it's orderly or disorderly. But of course, the more disorderly it is, the less coordinated it is, both in terms of uh, of bringing down carbon emissions, but also in terms of macro policy, like monetary policy, the less coordinated that is, the greater the risk of the, that it's more inflationary. We have done some preliminary, very preliminary research, I'll emphasise at the moment, Alison, uh, off the back of the network Network for Greening Financial System Simulations, which are being used by APRA at the moment in their um, uh, stress testing of the banking sector here in Australia. Look at their scenarios. In the medium term, a disorderly transition could add as much as one percentage point to global inflation. It's pretty hefty. Well, you can imagine that if if that were the case, and central banks were wanting to keep inflation within that two to three percent range. It would mean that uh, you know you'd have to have the other uh, commodities or the other goods and services that we consume tracking inflation probably uh, below two percent. Yeah, it's a really good point, um, and obviously an incredibly important thing to make sure that we do uh, have this energy transition and and go through to the the net zero goal that both the Queensland government has set and also the the federal government, but. Yeah, it's a challenging environment to get, I guess, that global coordination. Well, the global coordination also is important to get the productivity happening, right? So getting the productivity transfer across the different um, forms of of renewables and and whatnot is is very important in getting the uh, inflation rate down as well. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. Matthew, the last thing I wanted to touch on was the data that came out this week in Australia, particularly the the wage inflation data as well as the unemployment data. Unemployment's now at around about 40-year lows, I think, um, and wage prices are really creeping up. Probably the opposite direction of what Dr Lowe was hoping to see um, after his, you know, reasonably quick interest rate uh, central bank policy path that he's followed to date. Are we going to see a change in inflation outlook as a result very quickly? And therefore, what does that mean for cash rates in Australia? Well, I think the uh, wage data that's coming out at the moment is tracking the inflation path to somewhere between 8 and 9% uh, this quarter and the first quarter of next year. That, I think, is going to be consistent with the RBA taking the uh, cash rate to 3.6% by by March, which is very close to current market pricing. So I think those that 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 creeping higher of wage growth that we've seen over the last few months is and that pushing up uh, underlying inflation is what's driving partly the the higher outlook for interest rates that the RBA is going to have to follow. 
Well, that is good news in that we don't want them to go higher than we currently expect, I guess. So, um, Matthew, thank you very much for joining me um, again. And thanks to our listeners for taking 10.